0: Welcome back, everyone, to another Maintainer Office Hours. Uh, what's old is new again. We started this series with Apollo iOS, and now we're back to Apollo iOS again. Uh, I'm Jeff, Jeff Oriema, My pronouns are he and him. I live in Connecticut, and I'm the engineering manager for uh, the Apollo Client teams. That includes Apollo Client Web, Apollo Kotlin, and, of course, the subject of today's talk, Apollo iOS. Um, and I'm here with Calvin. Calvin, why don't you give us a quick intro as well?
1: Sure. My name is Calvin Sistari. I am in Vancouver, B.C. Then um, i actually just gone past two years at Apollo. It's gone by pretty quickly. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's me in a nutshell. I've been doing mobile development for a while.
0: And happy anniversary, Calvin. Um, it's hard to believe two years already. I've only been with you for part of that time, but it's been a great, uh, a great part of that time for sure. It certainly has flown by, that's for sure. Nice. All right. Well, it's been tradition to start maintainer office hours with a bit of a, a bit of a non sequitur, a bit of an icebreaker. Um, this one's kind of uh, iOS centric here. Uh, I got a question for you, Calvin. What what was the first Apple device you ever
1: used or bought? So the first one I bought was was one of those white MacBook Pros, the white plastic shell case. I think this was just after they transitioned from PowerPC to Intel. Uh, it must have been 2007 or something. Uh, so that was the first one I bought. But the first one that really got me into like the Apple ecosystem was an original iPhone. And I actually still have it. I dug it up. Uh, I put it on to charge, and that it charges. so rad. <laughs> it unlocks. Like, it's still usable.
0: It's That's amazing.
1: The thing's like over a decade old. Um, it's stuck on some ancient version of iOS, though. Let's see what this is, General. About three one three. I can't go any more than that. So it's it's pretty terrible to use. But it still works.
0: <laughs> Not officially supported, I think, uh, by Apollo iOS. But I wonder what what you'd have what we'd have to do in order to make it so.
1: So I have just a mini. But look at the difference in the screen size already, just to do, it's barely usable. The old one.
0: Uh, how long did you did you use it for? Like, how long did you hold on to the phone? Was it your daily driver for a while?
1: It was. Uh, I was still living in South Africa at the time, and they weren't available there. But my brother used to go to Hawaii quite often for work. So I got him to buy me one and bring it back. Um, and yeah, I used it for, for ages. I think I skipped the 3G and the 3GS, and then I got a 4. So it lasted for a long time.
0: I think the 4 was like a really big leap in design, if I'm not mistaken, Yeah. too. Uh, so you probably got off the right time. Now, now the, the original iPhone still only worked on like 2G Edge, right, or something like That's that? That's right. Yeah. So it, it crawled. <laughs> it did have a Wi-fi radio right or am I yes. misremembering that yeah, okay it does. so there's that It's interesting um so, you know uh, so many ways just to try and design I guess my the first device I actually bought uh, was marketed as the iPod video um I think it's now like referred to as the fifth generation iPod but it had like a color I think it was the first iPod with a color screen but it still had the wheel. Yeah. And I remember at the time I was in, I was at, uh, at a university. I went to the college of New Jersey and I was a music major. And so I was working in the uh, music technology lab as a lab assistant or whatever. Like I was there to make sure the computers were okay, I guess. Um, and I remember loading up my iPod video. In addition to music, uh, I would load it up with f- fresh Prince of Bel-Air episodes um that i would get from my college's uh whatever yeah peer-to-peer network i forget what you called it um (laughs) and uh that was that passed the time that passed the time um so fond memories of that device and i remember unearthing it years and years later um and just seeing if it still worked and and it did so a testament to the the build quality yeah they Um... i still think we were missing something with the wheel interface too (laughs) there's something to that
1: Those were very satisfying. The click they gave you as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. These devices are amazingly resilient for being something that you throw in your pocket every day and gets taken around no matter where you are. Like, yeah.
0: I don't know how they do it. Um, Yeah. Well, moving on to, uh, talking Apollo stuff. Um, one of the, uh, one of the things we're excited about as a as a company and as a team is the uh, at defer directive. Um, could you give us a sense of what is the defer directive and um, when it's coming to Apollo iOS?
1: So defer is um, it's a way for clients to like communicate to the server that's going to send them back the data to communicate like the priority of the data that you want back. So through the use of this defer directive, you get to kind of wrap a portion of the response data as saying that this can come back later. There's parts of this that I want immediately you to send back in the first response, but then you can take a little bit longer to get the rest. Um, and you know the way people used to be able to do this before is you either like you split your queries, so you you fetch the some things later that are not really important, or you prefetch some. Stuff that you might need more than the rest, um, but having this a part of the spec is really like a definitive way for you know server implementation to be able to support this need, which is a lot better. It, it's worth calling out there. This is not. It's not the same as subscriptions. It's not meant to be like real time data support. Um, it's it's still a single response. that single sorry request. But you're stating that yeah, take your time. Some give me this. Like this is the important bit immediately
0: that's interesting and you know it's it is interesting too that we that reminder about real time right because in in some ways it's like a challenge to what we understand a request and response cycle to be right a lot of times we're interested in fetching something discrete like a discrete amount of data and getting some sort of deterministic pile of data back and it sounds like that's that's different but not quite
1: the same as real time well the the real time's Support for that is subscriptions and subscriptions are like in, an endless stream, really. But stream being the important bit you keep getting these events and they keep updating you with the new values. Whereas defer is still a regular request. It's one request and it will end like once all your data has been received for you.
0: When is it coming to Apollo iOS? Because I know it we support it in different areas of the Apollo stack. Um curious to hear more about The Apollo IOS side of things.
1: So we support it in all the other open source areas of the stack, uh, Apollo server, and then the two other clients. Apollo IOS has lagged a bit in its support for it, but we chose to prioritize a piece of the work that implemented the transport protocol, the incremental delivery. So now that that has been in place for a little while, we can go ahead and do this. It is an H1 kind of feature for us. So we have uh, a couple weeks left to, you know, really grind away and get it done. Uh, it may stretch a little bit beyond that, but that's like imminently is, is really the answer to when we expect to have it in. It's really exciting. Um,
0: and like for, for folks who might not be familiar with the term, like a directive, like how does somebody use a directive in GraphQL? Like when we say that, what, what are you, cause I'm sure a lot of folks have used directives and they've typed it, but what is like,
1: what does that mean? You've probably seen it before. It has the, um, the at sign was an ampersand, um. We always refer to them as like at signs and you forget like the actual term of what they are, but anyway, it's an ampersand followed by like a, a string of text. Um, so you use these in your operations where you mark a fragment, a name fragment or an inline fragment with you tag it with this directive, uh, and then that signals how you want that piece of data to behave. So when folks
0: like kind of add this to their query or something like that, um, I know one of the coolest parts about Apollo y is the thing I find to be the coolest part is like code generation, right? We, we have these great, you know, these query documents and then they get translated into uh, the model code that helps underpin our applications. What, what effect does that have on model code? Like what is, what can folks expect when they type that differ in and what the output would be?
1: So at the, the most fundamental level, like it has to become optional in Swift. Like Swift needs to understand that this data could be, well it will be nil when the first response comes back. Um and then subsequently it will be filled in with the, the rest of the response data. Some of the things we're still fleshing out at the moment is how do we give you feedback that the response you're receiving is empty or nil because there is no data, nil because it's coming later, or nil because it is actually been marked as null. There's kind of three different ways that it can signal that. We're still trying to, you know, flesh out the details of that. Um, if we do it at the response level, it doesn't give you enough granularity to the different deferred statements you may have in the operation. If we do it in the operation at each of the like structures, the pieces of data that are going to be deferred, there's a few technical details to work out there, but that's kind of like the direction that we're training
0: in. Sounds like an interesting problem to solve, and um, glad this team's solving it uh, rather than leaving it to users. I think that that's a that's a huge deal. Um, really cool. And it's exciting to hear about. Uh, I know Defer has been, um, something that we've been really interested in as a company and it's great to see Apollo iOS getting that, um, teed up
1: next. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Um, I think it will be nice to have finally have parity with the other clients for that stuff.
0: Yeah. And just a side note, I just love the directives feature of GraphQL and just enables so many things to be, I think logically placed in the structure of an application. Um, it's such a powerful abstraction when when leveraged correctly. And I think defer is a great example of that.
1: They're really, very powerful, especially when you tread into you know, custom directives that are kind of specific to like, I mean, Apollo will have its own directives. And then even more narrowly scoped than that, Apollo iOS may have its own custom directives, And we do actually have one already with the local cache mutations. So it will affect just the Swift generated code, but no other parts of the ecosystem.
0: Local cache. Yeah, that's pretty cool. All right. Nice. Yeah, the custom directives are part of the spec too, which is which is great. Um, I think so. That gives a lot of a lot of space for folks to um, to add new functionality to their apps and for libraries to really introduce these powerful concepts. More of that later, I guess. Too,
1: but the beauty of them is that they're also declarative within the schema and the operations. Right? You don't have to. It's not going to be some config option that you have to set that's buried away somewhere. Like it's very easily readable within like, the human-readable tech of your operation or something.
0: You know, I know that's coming soon, at least the a bit, uh, to an upcoming minor release. Um, and I know we just uh, shipped Apollo iOS 1.2 not too long ago. Um, can you give us kind of an overview? What's new there?
1: And this one was a, a minor version bump, but it was a breaking minor version bump. We can come back later to the breaking bit. Mm-hmm. But there's a couple of pretty significant things in there. Um, The performance improvements are are a really nice win that came out of that. Anthony managed to squeeze out um, fairly significant performance when you look at the numbers. Uh, I think it was 15 to 20% in one part and like 75 to 80% in another part. And a lot of this is done under the hood by changing the way that we store the data or how we pass it around. Um, And then a bit of trickery with generics and the source of data for the executor and by doing that you allow the compiler to like unlock its own genius in how it's um i'm amazed by compilers but it can optimize a lot of the data structures around that for you know more efficiency so performance
0: improvements That's that's pretty exciting
1: i mean if you none of these pieces of code really execute for very long in the context of a single operation. So if you look at it in like a single operation, the time gain is really negligible, but it's when you begin to like over the session time of your application, all of those you know, combined together add up to, well, they can add up to some significant time savings for your your app and your users.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the time factor too, because I feel like that's an underappreciated part of GraphQL is that notion of savings over time and really utilizing this the cache for... Uh, saving network round trips and all sorts of other resources um, over the long term, over the life of your application or the life of a session or whatever. That's cool. Um, Anything else to write home about, about um, 1.2?
1: Every important bug fixes, there's a number of them. I don't know the exact specifics, but there's there's a handful of those. And then those are also in the subsequent releases, 1.2.1 and 1.2.2, which was just actually just released yesterday. Then there is a... There's a new code gen configuration option. This is where you can specify the access control modifier for the generated models. Uh, and this is really to better support, um, you know, like modular architectures. One of the big changes in the way 1.0 was built and released is to have this better support for modular architectures at zero with well, the legacy versions. They could do it, but it, it wasn't great. So the way you can structure your code in the version one is a lot better for people that build these module architecture apps and when you put code into a module you can annotate its kind of visibility really within the module and outside the module and what we were doing before 120 is all the code that was generated in the models they would be annotated as being publicly scoped which means they would be available outside those modules it's not always the best thing for you know making sure that you don't leak pieces of the code around or pieces of the data. It's also just some teams are quite sticky about what you can and cannot access. Um so this allows you to now set um it's either a choice of public or internal. And it's not available on all configurations. In other words, if you are outputting your schema types to a Swift package. If we were to allow you to make it internal, then it's really kind of dead code because there's no logic embedded in it and you can't get into it. So it wouldn't be able to do anything for you. In other words, those are always public. But as an example, if you are choosing to manually embed your code in a target that you control and operate, then you're able to define it as internal. So it doesn't go anywhere beyond that module. Um, But yes, it's just offering more control over the visibility of the code that you generate. Sounds
0: like a win, honestly, for separation of concerns and things like that um
1: well there is one more big change and this is the, the breaking part of the release is there was a change to the the cache key configuration API and the reason it's breaking is that the the signature of that function changed and one of the types of the data that we give back to you is a different type now cache key resolution the source of the data that we hand to you in other words to give us the cache key can th- come from one of three places that's either a, a network response which is json it's either um, user-supplied data through the selection set initializers, or it's from the cache, and they all are broadly similar, but they're all unique in one way or another. And the way we were exposing that before, as you know, adjacent object, is not correct. You had to be aware of some. If if it was coming from one particular source, pieces of the data would behave differently, and that's like it's not really great at all. So what this change does now is it created a new abstract type called object data, which will behave the same across all of those sources. Um, just for more consistency, really. Um, but the thing to bear in mind there is that it's a fairly new data structure and it's not as fully featured as something like a dictionary. So depending on your usage of that data in your logic for your cache key resolution, you may run into some, you know, something that you needed that is not there if you do like please let us know and and we can build it out for you
0: nice and the please let us know bit uh
1: what does that look like github issue an issue yeah or uh harass us on twitter (laughs) or somewhere like that but an issue would be the best because we can then track it and work against it yes
0: fair enough yeah um keeping track of i always feel like the twitter replies are harder and harder to keep track of these days i don't know what, something about the training logic. Don't
1: visit there very often, to be honest. Oh yeah, So,
0: yeah. <laughs> so GitHub issues, then, or uh, yeah. maybe add us on 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 this Discord. Um, we'll say hey, uh, and I want to point people also to the front end channel here too. Um, they're a great place to kind of uh ask anything client related. Um, awesome. So like as I understand it, and you you talked about breaking and everything. One of the things that I always like that I liked looking at uh, for and reading about the 1.0 release was this migration guide we have. And now um, some folks might not be accustomed to seeing a migration guide when it comes to minor versions uh, because there's a 1.2 migration guide now. Uh, Can you walk us through kind of what people can expect looking at that migration guide and, and more about that breaking change? I think you hinted at it earlier.
1: Yeah, so there is a standard called semantic versioning semver. It's often abbreviated as... Uh, And that really aims to kind of create consistency and give meaning to like the underlying changes that happened with, from one version to the next, right? If if you look at the version numbers, X dot Y dot Z X is major, you know, could be completely incompatible API changes, like expect something very major to break minor is the definition of it is when you add functionality in a backwards compatible way. And then patch is when you make backwards compatible bug fixes. So we do our best to adhere to that with the caveat that our minor version releases can include minor breaking changes. It's not strictly to the spec, but our definition of a minor breaking change is one where you are not required to go and do major refactoring of your code. In this instance, the, the migration guide says it's in, in the overwhelming majority of cases, it's going to be a simple function signature change, and then you can carry on. Um, so you will get a bold error when you upgrade, but it's completely within your control and relatively easy to migrate. That's really our definition of it.
0: Makes sense. And forgetting that those performance wins and everything, that's a trade-off I'd, I'd be fine making.
1: <laughs> we do our best to avoid them, but sometimes you know it's a fine line of, is this really worth a bump to 2.0 simply because it breaks something for you, or can we live with, something that's slightly more painful
0: yeah And that relationship to like the December uh the letter of the law I think I've seen different projects take different approaches to that um yeah so um that's interesting thanks for thanks for that um I think it we get some questions about that sometimes it's always nice to hear kind of what what the uh what the pulse of the team is on
1: yeah uh the um no I think about it we had an issue recently about the access modifier because that It's not, well, I mean, I suppose it is a breaking change. The defaults changed because we had an inconsistency in the way we were doing it before where everything was marked as public, but some of it wasn't. And the new default is for everything to be internal. So if you just, you're not required to add the new configuration option to your config, but with the default being internal, you are going to get a difference in the generated code output. So if you just upgraded and did your code generation again, you may get build errors where, you were accessing things that were public before, but they're not now. But again, like easily resolvable through a single statement in your config that says make everything public like it was before. Makes sense. Still surprising though.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It makes sense. Thanks for walking us through that. For those of you who are listening right now and are familiar with the office hours, by right now, um, one of the things that we uh, that we do is we have kind of a manifest of a few topics we want to hit in advance and they're in relative order. And so Calvin, I'm going to throw you a curveball a little bit, and put something ahead of the line, if you don't mind, based on what you're saying. Um, cause you, um, uh, one of the other, I think things we get a lot of questions about, and I'm curious to hear your take on is, uh, initializers, selection set initializers and test mocks. Um, for those you know, if, if folks are taking an interest in this office hours, they might be familiar with these abstractions, one or the other, or both. Um, can you walk us through kind of what they are, and then we'll drill a little deeper. But test mocks and, yeah. and selection set initializers.
1: Well, let's do initializers first, because they removing them created the need for test mocks. So the initializers are, on your selection sets, you were, in the legacy version, you were had the ability to initialize them, to create new ones with the data that you feed into it. Right in the release of 1.0 and the design of that, we removed that ability because we wanted to make it very clear that these models were the result of a response, like they were created with data that was given to you by a server through the network, not of your own, like the the data that in there was not yours. Like it's come back to you. Like these are response objects. They're immutable, they are contained and you cannot change them. It was a very contentious move. A lot of people. Didn't like it, and you know we we stuck by the design and created test mocks, which gives people the ability to you know create these selection sets with test mock data, which I hope everyone is testing their code. That's yeah. the need that it satisfies. Since then, we've come to learn that you know it maybe wasn't the best decision, and people use these in ways that we you know we went for of mind at the time that we removed them. Uh, they want to throw them into yes tests, obviously. Uh, but Xcode and SwiftUI supports these things called previews, which is a, a weird place to be because previews is not it's not test code, but it's not deployed production code either. Mm-hmm. So you have this weird middle ground where you're throwing test data into your actual app, but not shouldn't really be there in the first place. Yes, initializers are back uh, as of version one one zero. selection sets now have initializers and you can create them as you wish uh, and do what you will with them test mocks are still slightly different in that they operate at the schema object level so with test mocks, you create an object from the schema and then you build a selection set from that mock data so you're still not in you're indirectly initializing selection sets but you have to you have to work with a different plane of data to begin with
0: Gotcha. So we have two kind of, sounds like they're conceptually similar, but there are details that folks need to be aware of. Um, If you were to give like kind of a piece of generalized advice to developers who might be listening to this, what would you say? Like how what should folks reach for today if they're looking for a way to generate non-production data for whatever their purpose, like a unit test or a preview or what have
1: you? Test knocks are, are useful if you want to like seed a bunch of data somewhere and then create a bunch of operations from that same seeded data. If you're having a very narrowly scoped test uh, or you, you want to um, initialize a fragment or an operation to throw at one of your screens to like, present to the user before you get data back from the server, like use the initializers. Um, it really depends on what it is that you're trying to do. Now that initializers are back on the scene, it's thrown up like the question of like, our test mocks like do they still have value in the future? Which we haven't answered yet as a team, so uh, it's to be determined, I suppose.
0: All right, nice. Well, it's good to know um, that we have options available to us, and that the team's thinking hard about which which ones and how to bring give developers the tool they need now and in the future. So exciting. Um, I think there was something. Along these lines, similar asked in the Discord, there was a pretty, uh, pretty long exchange here. Uh, I'm posting the uh, a link in here, but this this conversation did kind of span uh, a few different things. I, I chimed in a little bit. I, uh, uh, I I needed a couple of a couple of corrections there, but um, ultimately the the person who asked this question was talking about building um, building something usable out of json um and and, and anthony responded uh anthony miller um from apollo ios as well uh responded in line there curious to hear kind of your take on that and like what developers should be thinking about when they're working with raw json or when they think they need raw json in order to feed into their applications
1: yeah so i went and looked through that thread and this is it's a user that's familiar with like the legacy version and how that operated and what they were able to do with the data was given back to them And it doesn't work the same in 1.0 now. Um, So they, from what I can glean, they have like custom data structures that they were receiving the response, taking the raw JSON, augmenting it with something else, and then deserializing it into this custom data structure of theirs. Right? With 1.0, you don't get access to that raw JSON anymore, which means you can't augment it, and then you cannot deserialize it. Right? And the reason we do that is raw JSON is just it's raw data. Like every time you want to do something specific with it or more efficiently with it, you have to convert it into a data structure that's easier to work with. So we do that within the executor and we do it for the executor for the cache, for cache key resolution, for cache reading and writing and passing it around just better than JSON does. Um, but then we have no need to keep the raw JSON around. So we don't, we just, we don't make it available to you. You can still do it. Like you can still take the response that's given to you and using the inner functions of the data structures end up with json that is the same as what you would have received from the server and then you could go ahead and augment it and you know deserialize it into whatever structure you want it's not straightforward but it's also not terribly complex either
0: it's helpful thanks um it's always nice to have kind of a a way forward with that sort of thing
1: the power of apollo ios really is in its generated code we generate these very type-safe models, and that's what we give you the data in. Like the the, the shape is predefined by your operations. Um, other clients would give you; they act as the graphql conduits. They go to the server, they come back, but then they don't do any they don't do anything on there. It's just like they just they barf the data up to you, and you do what you want with it. If you're wanting the raw JSON data, like what value is there in the models for you? And Maybe maybe that's a need we need to satisfy too. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, it might go back to like kind of like the, what we think what is GraphQL, right? What what are what are its strengths? What does it unlock for your team? And you know, it, it might be different things to different people, but you know, it does. I think it does imply certain features, even if they're not in the spec, or certain ways of of developing. Like we we've spoken on this um, in office hours before about the power of a normalized cache and things like that. You know, though that's not there in the spec, right? There's there are ways to. To, to think along the lines of graphql and what the tools that it uh, it implies and there are ways to kind of i guess work around it <laughs> uh and you know wherever possible give yourself a tailwind work with the semantics of the language and the
1: well i mean that's a, another whole conversation itself but it's a good one nonetheless is like you don't need a whole client if you want to actually use graphql like you can do it all today just with url session and like send the send the request get the response back and do what you want But it's as soon as you tread into the territory of like spec compliance, that's when things get complicated because there's a million different ways that you can do things and get things back and different things that you have to support. And that's the real value in it. And like you said, the tailwind, like making your life easier, type safety is great. Utilize it.
0: Type safety is great. Utilize it. I know you're not on Twitter very often, but there's a tweet. (laughs) Um, Cool we talked about the dynamic features of the language more and it's the extensibility with custom directives. Right. Um, but another, I think feature of GraphQL is custom scalars. Um, what is a custom
1: scalar? So uh, a custom scalar is at the heart of it, a way for you to have different data structures other than what, you know, the GraphQL spec provides by, by default, there's a number of them. Or what is it is like int float, string, uh, Boolean, I think that's about it. Um, ID, right? Yeah, ID yeah. too. Yeah. But you know, you may have different needs. Uh, the one that's I've seen most often cited is like a date, um, mm-hmm. you know, like date in ISO format that you then parse into an actual date data structure. A custom scalar is a way for you to declare a new type within your schema and then to use that type in... In the different you know types within the schema and in your operations Uh, and then once the code is generated apollo ios provides you a way to do the transformation from the data that comes in into this new native data type that you want to use
0: and like when i mean dates seem like a a pretty intuitive way of using this have you seen any other kind of usages that are particularly interesting or um something to copy or, or consider i say no. Like yeah. I. Dates do I seem know. like a frequent flyer, right? Like.
1: <laughs> they are. I think the miss here is like, I said earlier that we work to be spec compliant. Spec compliant is great. And all you have to do is support the notion of a custom scaler. So you need to provide the framework around, you're going to get back something that's not a traditional scaler, provide for the user to transform it and then let them use it. The actual, like, the types of different custom scalers that people use, those could be anything. Actually, like, I have seen one. And it was someone using, they had a lot of difficulty with it, and it was, they were getting um, location data. I think it was coming back. It was, like, a dictionary of flat and long or something, um, like doubles. Um, yeah, yeah, that's one example. Coordinates.
0: Yeah, and, and, and yeah, then you get into the, the particulars of how we, you know, the intersection of GraphQL and whatever platform language you're using and how to how to do that. And
1: that's really interesting. It's really about providing the framework for extensibility. Like you said,
0: custom scalers, custom directives, all these nice ways to kind of declare your intent there. Um, so changing gears a bit, we talked, we kind of opened the session a bit with, uh, our first Apple devices that we've, that we bought. Um, I should have brought out my iPod actually now that I think about it, cause I do have it somewhere and I, pretty sure i there's one of three boxes it could be in so i should have brought it out and so a, a miss on my part uh but obviously there's a new class of device that was uh announced at wwdc this year uh recently um the apple vision uh, now we're, we're pretty far away from talking about that in terms of apollo technology uh but i'm curious you know there have been there were a lot of um features for the swift language and others and other platform features that were announced at, at wwdc and i'm wondering. What's got the team excited? What, what are we thinking about?
1: Anthony yesterday actually put up a, a pinned issue that kind of details all this stuff. Let me just pull it up here quickly. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that. Right off the bat though, like WWDC is great. It announces all these awesome new things that you can do and people get all, all excited about it and they want to go start using them immediately. Uh, it's gonna take us a while to adopt any of these things. Just the first point, like it's gonna take a while for them to settle and become stable within the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also have to support a few different versions of Swift and the OSs. So while your particular use case might be like, I can use macros today. Like I, I'm on the very narrow, uh, like front of the line stuff that I can, I can benefit from this. Like not, not everybody can, and we need to find what is beneficial to everyone using the pilot iOS, uh, instead of like, what would be cool to build, like what is actual, what is actually meaningful. Um, so a couple of the things that were highlighted there is the first one is macros. There was one user that already created an issue, very excited to use it. the couple of the ways that we see this could be used is the ability to kind of make your existing generated models smaller. We would be able to then change the implementation of some of the code behind the scenes through a macro that you don't necessarily have to see in the generated code. Um, we might be able to generate your models through a macro. In other words, you feed in the macro your your operation string or even just the location of a file, and then at build time that would get expanded out into the the generated model. That's pretty nice. Um, I think that would be very cool. Uh, it does make you know some of the some of the hidden difficulties in this is if it's not expanded, then you know, does it less easy to read about the code? Is it less easy to to see what's going on under the hood? Some people may be interested in that, and then We would also have to think about how we share schema metadata and types um so that kind of a change could require like a pretty pretty big change under the hood um what else do we have oh here's a, a radical departure from the way cogen is at the moment is that we could so the way cogen works is you give us your operations and we define the models what if we flip that around and you give us the models and we generated the operations and the text, the, the query text that we get sent back and forth.
0: That's interesting. It kind of inverts I think there there are two different they are like code first and schema first server implementations, I think. Yeah. And I'm I'm used to like GraphQL Ruby where you wrote you wrote your modules and then they would create a schema from that. Sounds like uh that's coming to the client maybe. <laughs> there
1: is a term for it. I forget the name there. Um I can't remember it. If anybody knows, pop it in the chat. Uh, another feature we saw had potential is non-copyable structs and enums. So I think this is a pretty fundamental change to the way Swift does its value types, where you can mark something as I'm going out of limit. like I haven't completely read this, but my understanding from the brief bit that I did see is that instead of having a value type that is copied everywhere, it gets some of the behavior of like a reference type. Um but with the specific limitation that it cannot be copied. So the compiler could optimize like storage, for instance, and how it's passed between. It's really just for efficiency, I suppose. Um
0: I can see why that could be impactful or a dead end, I guess. More more research, right? I think it says there. More research needed. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh
1: Swift data integrations. Um Swift Data is kind of a Swift UI layer on top of Core Data. Um, so, is this something that we could leverage to, you know, for our persistence of the cache? I'm I'm not entirely sure. And like Anthony's got a caveat here: is exploratory, but unlikely to be a viable solution. I think there's going to be a lot of hidden complexity in there. But also just around the the concept of a normalized cache doesn't necessarily translate one to one to the way all these other data persistence layers work.
0: Shout out to our last office hours on Apollo iOS 2. There's a there's a, a meaty discussion on that as well, on like normalized caching versus other persistence type uh, concerns.
1: So that one would probably need quite a bit of uh, investigation. Mergeable libraries, uh, it seems to be a way to use dynamic libraries but get some of the benefits of static libraries. I think it still uses dynamic libraries, but it increases the kind of like the load time and you know, it increases the performance of the runtime basically to you for you to get some of those statically compiled benefits. Mm. Um, I don't know if there's actually anything for us to do here because that kind of stuff is probably controlled by the app, by the project itself that pulls in a ios as a dependency. We may have to add some support for saying that we are able, that our library is able to be built in this way. Um, but the actual way that that would be implemented is probably going to be in user's own projects themselves. And then similar to the last one, the privacy manifest, Apollo doesn't choose to store any data unless you tell it to. So the privacy declaration really is around like your app and, and what are you choosing to store. Uh, there are some like I think our default cache policy for a request is that we will store it in the cache if you give it a store, you know, like a cache persistent store. Uh, but again, that's changeable in any request that you want. So debatable whether we have anything to declare there, but you know we'll take a look at it anyway.
0: Fair enough. Um, it's great to to hear that the team is uh, is thinking about this stuff actively. Some of it seems immediately reachable, and others wait to see. But um, always an exciting time when uh, when we get that kind of fire hose of information from Apple, and we have and we're uh, we get to figure out what what to do with it all.
1: And that's exactly what it is right a fire hose of a week they're throwing all these different videos at you and examples and some of stuff works some of it doesn't but that's really in the subsequent months that everything shakes out as to how viable it really is the great thing about um the ios and apple ecosystem is people generally tend to stay well adopt the new technology as soon as they can um it's one of the things i've always appreciated about it
0: and i think that i mean coming from the web world I think that there's there's a certain level of like at least in the web platform we can expect like massive change and churn almost at any time. It's almost like we always have to be looking around the corner whereas you know there are a few times a year I think as you know working in in Apple's ecosystem where you can expect kind of um, the next big idea the next big things. And there are clearly big exceptions to that on both sides. Um, but still um, it's nice to kind of know to to expect news at a given time and to be able to um, to know that the ecosystem is largely bought into to moving with it
1: you have a hot take on the apple vision <laughs>
0: <laughs> a hot take on it. you know it's funny because i look at it and i'm i guess i'm just such a boring person that i just look at it and i see wow infinite monitors and i go back to my time being an on-call engineer and having to, you know, monitor network health for a non-trivial amount of systems at the same time, like, oh, wow, that would have been great. Like, I don't need six monitors now. I have infinity monitors here and I can keep all my data dog charts (laughs) open. Or uh, nowadays, all my Apollo Studio uh, uh, observability insights open. Uh, So that's the first thing I did is like, wow, unlimited virtual screens. Uh, And that alone could probably justify the cost for me. Uh, So my hot take is... Extra screens, extra screens, wow. But then I heard it's like a two-hour battery life, so I'm not sure how... If you could keep it plugged in or not, whatever. Um, so me, I'm excited about the monitor space, which is probably the most boring take possible.
1: I'd love to try it. Yeah. Yeah, I am... Find the target audience for the first release, but we'll see. Like, what, what would you use it for? Like, let's say somebody gave you one tomorrow. I'm actually not sure. And I've had that feeling with a couple of the Apple products. I remember getting the first iPad that came out. I got it. It was delivered, I used it for about an hour and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to use this thing. So I actually packaged it up and I wanted to return it. And then I kept it for a little bit longer. I was like, yeah, oh, this is kind of cool. Like I can, I can get a, like I can find a use for it. Um, so maybe this would be the same. I don't know. I am not a big gamer, so I don't have an obvious usage for it that way.
0: Well, yeah. And that's, that's the interesting part is they do seem to be putting an effort into making it, you know, about more than just like experiences or, or games and, uh, media in that in that regard which is i think the most interesting thing to me personally
1: i would get the most value out of something like that if it were if it were more like augmented into daily life like if it was something that you could wear like if you walked up to a bus stop and it showed you all the times for the next buses that were going to come because it detected the stop and the number and knew where you were that kind of thing but i'm not gonna i wouldn't walk around with a big goggles on my face permanently right so it's a little bit of less value to me well it'd be interesting too from our point of view like you know apollo ios is uh
0: it says apollo ios on it right but you you don't need to use it in ios right like you can it no. can be used for mac os apps it can be used yep. for for other things
1: watch os mac os and ios i think there are some parts of it you can use in linux now but the code gen won't work for linux um not for Swift Linux anyway, uh, because there's part of the cogen runtime that needs like macOS. It is a goal to have it completely um, the ability to be used in all of those platforms regardless of where you are.
0: You have a question from Dylan. Should it be renamed to Apollo Swift following Apollo Kotlin's
1: example? Well, we've spoken about that, haven't we? The the same like Apollo Android went to Apollo Kotlin. I think it's a nice name. Do we have to wait for Linux support first, though? I don't know.
0: Well, and then you know we could also run. A, I suppose eventually it'll compile to be able to be you know, make a usable binary for um for Apple Vision too. Uh, but we'll see how uh, how GraphQL permeates the uh metaverse, so to speak.
1: I what did they what, did they say it was Vision OS? I'm not quite sure what version of OS I
0: think they did say that because I remember I heard I read something about XROS or something, but now they're calling it Vision OS, if I'm not mistaken.
1: I, which i assume will probably be similar to the way watch os works not as independent as kind of although i guess in the last few versions it has become more independent but i was going to say it, ios is the like the big one that you build for and kind of the other ones are ancillary to it
0: but yeah good question about apollo swift and i guess if we extend that logic to apollo client web um maybe apollo TypeScript, right if we're following that naming convention um but uh, again, it's uh, naming things is hard. <laughs> um, yeah, fair enough. Nice. Well, um, you know, if folks have any? Uh, I think we touched upon this earlier, but if they have any feedback for Apollo iOS or uh, anything like that, where should they go? Should they go to our GitHub, go and come here. Like what?
1: Yeah, we have a few channels. There's the obviously GitHub repo, which myself and the rest of the team monitors all the time. So as soon as anything comes in there, we'll pick it up. Uh, but the other channels are there's the Apollo community forums. Uh, we have Discord here, and I, d- I don't think we have any public Slack spaces, do we?
0: No, no. I think we're Discord is is folks should I think folks who should go to uh the Discord for that. Um, but yeah, we're all on it, right? So give us an at.
1: Yeah, any one of those you can reach us.
0: All right. Well, Calvin, thanks a bunch for a for great office hours. It's great uh, connecting with you and chatting about these old school Apple devices and all the cool stuff that we can find in Apollo iOS and GraphQL. Um, yeah. Folks listening uh, live, look out for the recording in the coming weeks. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. I think next on the run, we have another Apollo Kotlin uh, office hours coming up. So uh, we'll get that on the calendar as soon as we can.
1: I always enjoy these. They're nice.
0: Take care, everyone. We'll close the stage and uh, have a great Friday and a great weekend.